Have you wondered recently if you're burning out? Or perhaps you know that you've been burnt out in the past and have barely recovered before you started working again at full throttle and you're wondering how to avoid ending up in exactly the same situation as before when the pressure and the demands on you just seem to be increasing rather than letting up. Many of us have suffered burnout. Even if we didn't call it that at the time, we can often look back at points in our careers and recognise times when we were pretty close. Burnout is such a significant and miserable thing to go through. You'd have thought that we'd do anything in our power to avoid it. But unfortunately, often we just go back into an identical situation without making any significant changes. And then we wonder why it happens to us again and again. Or perhaps we recognise that we're only just functioning one or two levels above burnout and feeling pretty miserable. But we think that while we're still able to work, we have no choice but to soldier on. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Claire Ashley. She's a GP and burnout specialist who has experienced burnout on repeat. We talk about what happens to our brains in burnout, the guilt and shame which we feel which prevents us from asking for help or making the changes we need to. And we tackle the very real issue of how to avoid burning out again when you're working in a system over which you have very little control. So listen to this episode to find out what the 12 stages of burnout are and if you can recognise yourself in any of them. What to do to avoid it in the future if you're returning to work after burnout and nothing has changed. And how your values and outlook on life may change after burnout and how you can in fact use that to your advantage. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high stress, high stakes jobs. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. It's wonderful to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Claire Ashley. Now, Claire is a GP currently working as a locum and she describes herself as a burnout survivor and a burnout expert. So welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've got Claire on the podcast today to talk a little bit about burnout, about her own personal experiences, how she got through and also what she thinks is necessary to help other people. Because Claire, I know that you've experienced burnout sort of once, 
twice. How, how many times now, would you say? I initially burnt out in 2019, which is coincidentally the same year that the WHO finally recognised burnout as a syndrome. It's been known about since the 70s, in fact, but it didn't receive its official recognition until 2019. And unfortunately, when I burnt out in 2019, I made some mistakes with my recovery. And alongside the mistakes that I made, we also had a pandemic that kind of got in the way of my recovery. And last year, I slid again into burnout. But luckily, the second time around, I was able to recognise what was happening to me at an earlier stage and get help at a much earlier stage and do some real deep work and make the changes that I really needed to make in order to recover and stay recovered at that point. So yeah, it's been one one burnout crisis in 2019 and a difficult period last year of, of several months actually where I ended up under practitioner health with the help of a GP and a therapist. I have been able to get into a position now where I, I feel much better in myself and I'm and I'm able to work sustainably as a result of the help that I've had. I think that's really interesting, Claire, because I have noticed that this is really, really, really common. It seems to be that people don't just have one burnout. Often it can be a recurrent thing. And I often talk to people who are really beating themselves up about it and feeling really guilty or really silly that, oh, I've I've burnt out again. I'm so stupid. How could this happen to me? But it, it seems to me to be quite a common pattern of of what happens. Why do you think that is? So I think there are several reasons as to why this happens. So the first thing is that we cannot ignore the elephant in the room, which is that you burn out when you have been subject to unsustained and uncontrolled stress at work that has not been successfully managed. And one of the problems that we have, certainly as healthcare professionals and working within the NHS at the moment, is that those pressures are really really pervasive and really really tough at the moment and the difficulty that we have is that we if we continue to work within those systems and we're subject to those pressures continuously it doesn't matter how much work you might do on yourself um, how much therapy you might have if you're still in the fire you're still going to get burnt and I think unfortunately this is a huge issue within the NHS at the moment because I don't see any kind of push for change coming from the top down. We're in very, very difficult circumstances post-COVID and it's it's just the perfect storm and environment for burnout and multiple burnouts as well. One of my favourite quotes about burnout is that it, you don't need a more resilient canary if they keep dying in the toxic environment of the mine. And I think that fits really nicely with, with what is happening within healthcare at the moment. And I think that healthcare workers in general carry a huge sense of responsibility and wanting to do the right thing. You know, we tend to be people pleasers, we're caregivers. We go into the profession to to work for our patients and to put them first. And that's really what drives us. Our jobs are vocations. And when our jobs harm us and they and they actively work against us. I think quite often we we see ourselves as the problem and we blame ourselves. We carry a lot of guilt and shame associated with our burnout. And I think that's partly due to our own internal factors. I think a lot of us carry similar personality traits that unfortunately put us at risk of developing those emotions and those feelings. But we also have a problem within our working culture that weaponizes that guilt against us. You know, we've all had pressure put on us to fill 
un, you know, gaps in the rota or to step up outside of our competencies by our managers or our supervisors or our consultants. And that guilt is, is normalised and it's weaponized against us. And I think that that can impact on our decision making when it comes to burnout as well. So not only are we working within a system that doesn't allow us to really fully recover if we've experienced it, we also carry a lot of internal factors, personality traits, guilt and shame that unfortunately might prevent us from recovering fully. And that's why we might slide into burnout again in the future. So I, I, that's a very long winded way of saying I think it's it's multifactorial. Just to add, whilst I'm saying there that I think that we carry a lot of our own internal risk factors for burnout and for multiple burnouts that doesn't mean that that you're at fault if it happens to you and it doesn't mean that you're at fault if it happens to you repeatedly what it means is that you are working within a system that is completely broken and asking too much of you for too long and that's why it's happened yeah I think you're absolutely right because if you keep on doing what you've always done you're always going to get what you've always got and I guess that you then face the dilemma and the real quandary that if you are going to choose to carry on still working as a doctor, unless you can choose to go work somewhere completely different, which which is also a valid choice and many, many people do that, if you're going to choose to carry on working in that very, very difficult environment on the basis that you can't often change the environment unless you're the the CEO and even then they would say, well, I can't change it either. You then have to look at changing yourself changing that internal guilt (laughs) stuff and I think that's so important about weaponizing guilt about how we might go back with all these resolutions that okay I am going to say no I'm going to put the boundary here I'm not going to do that but then as soon as someone asks us we feel dreadful as soon as someone maybe insinuates that we might not be coping or um, implies that we're being a bit selfish that just just does us in and we sort of crumble and we end up doing it I mean have you seen stuff like that happening or experienced it yourself oh 100% I've experienced it I think you know it's it's probably one of the things that unites us as healthcare professionals and certainly as doctors working in the NHS and I can I can give you um, some examples of how that has been used against me and affected me in my own burnout recovery as well So when I initially burnt out, I was working in a surgery where unfortunately we didn't have enough GPs to meet the demands of our patients. And when I hit a crisis point and I and I hit a crisis point really, really hard. I mean, I was in a very, very difficult place when this happened to me and I I probably should have taken some time off sick, but I didn't because a lot of external pressure was put on me to not do that because of the impact it would have on my patients. So I had my own list of patients because of the impact that it would have on my colleagues who were already struggling themselves. And that plus the own in, my own internalized guilt and shame. And I was deeply ashamed of what had happened to me. I sailed through medical school, sailed through my postgraduate training with not a whiff of a mental health problem. And six months into being a GP, I was an absolute wreck and I was absolutely desperate. I was clinically depressed. I had very severe anxiety and I I completely blamed myself for what had happened. I didn't even know what burnout was at that particular point. I didn't know it was a word. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, I just knew that I didn't recognize who I had become and um, it had completely destroyed my confidence as well and so 
when you're at that point, when you're feeling incredibly vulnerable, and it's very hard to advocate for yourself when you're in that position, to then be told by your bosses, we we don't want you to go off sick because it's going to affect the service. Of course, that affects your decision making. And as a result, I didn't take sick leave. They did make some changes at work in order to accommodate the fact that I was finding things, I was struggling very, very hard. And and I, I really should have taken some time off though. And knowing what I know now about burnout recovery, I absolutely shot myself in the foot by staying at work when I really should have had probably several months off sick in order to fully recover. But I didn't know that at the time. And and that was something that has unfortunately, I think, affected my long-term recovery and was probably a factor in me sliding again because I didn't go through that initial period. Um, but it's, it's not just myself, you know, I am very active over on Instagram. I have 12,000 followers and my DMs are full of healthcare workers and people largely in the public sector, actually, as well. So teachers, social workers, etc., telling me about their journeys and about the, the pressure that is put on them as well. And absolutely guilt plays a huge part in them staying in in jobs, perhaps that are harming them and absolutely affects their self-esteem their confidence and their decision making unfortunately yeah we, we see this all the time don't we and in fact it's interesting when I run training sessions on all of this particularly on why we find it difficult to say no the biggest objection people have well they don't like saying no to patients they feel really bad but actually it's the thought that you're going to be dumping on colleagues is the biggest one I think for healthcare professionals and the problem is, it's, it's not in your mind, oh, I, I might just dump on colleagues. Actually, you, you totally will. <laughs> that is the problem, isn't it? That is the reality. If you go off sick, then someone else has to pick up the work, unless they then choose to say no to the work. And that's, I guess, another whole podcast topic about how we say, you know, this is the work that we can do as a practice. And, and, and this is where we need to draw the line. And we're very, very, very bad at doing that. So, what would you now have said to that that Claire back then who was just feeling really, really awful about possibly dumping on colleagues? That's a, a very, very interesting question. I don't know if there's any advice I could have said to that Claire at that particular point in time that would have changed how I was feeling and the decisions that I was making. I'd like to think that I would have listened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, knowing how stubborn I am, I probably wouldn't have done. So yeah, when it comes to the guilt. I think it's really, really hard for us to put ourselves first and our own needs first because we're so habitualized into putting other people's needs first. And actually, on that note, talking about the impact we have on our colleagues, we have a problem within our medical working culture whereby we feel bad about impacting negatively on our colleagues if we go off sick, for instance, or if we're not able to to work at this, the pace or the level or the intensity that our colleagues are working at, or at least we perceive they're working at. But we do have this culture of not really being tolerant or kind to people that are struggling. And I think that's definitely something that needs to change in order to support our colleagues. So what I really needed back then were my colleagues to say to me, Claire, we know you're really struggling. You just take the time that you need to 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 get over this, you know, go and speak to someone, go and speak to your GP, get some help go and see what they recommend and then come back to us and we'll be happy to support you. That's what I needed to hear at that particular point in time. But unfortunately, I didn't. I think one of the biggest realisations I had post burnout was that the guilt that I was experiencing 
was inappropriate for the situation. So if you think about guilt, guilt is a really uncomfortable emotion and it's designed to be uncomfortable. And you're designed to experience it when perhaps you've made a decision or you've done something or you've said something that doesn't really fit with your own ethical code or your internal moral compass. And the reason why you feel guilty is because when you do things like that, it's a prompt to make you reflect on what you've done and think, maybe I need to go back and undo that. Or perhaps I need to go and do something differently. Perhaps I need to go and fix what I've done. And then you go away and you fix what you've done wrong. And then you feel better and your guilt is alleviated. What happens in healthcare, however, is that guilt that you're experiencing isn't because you've done something wrong. It's because of the way that we're working. And for instance, a lot of the guilt might come from, you know, when when you're interacting with your patients and they're distressed, but you're not able to provide the care that you want to because you're pressurized for time or resource, and then you feel bad about it. And then when you start to feel bad, quite often in, in burnout, your thinking processes get quite disordered. And I know certainly mine was. And the leap I made was, I'm feeling bad, so therefore I must be bad. And so I started to think that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. So not only did I feel guilty about things, I also genuinely blamed myself as well. And so in terms of giving advice to the the, the Claire that was in burnout crisis, I think it would be about focusing on that and telling her that because just because you are feeling this doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're a bad doctor and it's not your fault. I totally agree. I think the problem is that... Often we wait for our colleagues to validate our decisions and we wait for other people yeah. to say, yeah, it's okay, please, please go off sick, please go off sick. But frankly, that is not going to happen. If you are working in somewhere where everybody is stressed and everybody is under pressure, unless you have some very, very enlightened, very, very wonderful colleagues, not many people are going to go, you know what, you take all the time you need. We'll just absorb the work. We'll be okay. So if you're waiting for your direct colleagues to give you permission to take time off work, you might be waiting a very, very long time. But that doesn't mean you don't need to take time off. So if anyone is in that situation right now, this is me and Claire, we are giving you permission (laughs) to take the time off that you need. Because actually, in the long run, that's going to be better for your colleagues. Because as you said, Claire, the longer you leave it before going off, the worse things get, the longer it takes to recover. Was that your experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the evidence tells us that people need, on average, three and a half months off sick before they even contemplate going back to work. But it can be up to a year, in fact. And that's because burnout does such a number on your brain's structure and function. And because it changes your physiology as well in the way that it upregulates your stress hormones. And I think it's really important, and I didn't realise at the time, unfortunately, just how important it is to have that time off in order to start the recovery process. And me not taking that time off sick definitely drew out my recovery and meant that I slid again last year, unfortunately. And what you just said there, Rachel, about in the long run, you will end up infecting your colleagues more if you don't take the time now. That is something I think that medics really struggle with in particular. At what point do you say, I need to go off now? Because as you said, no one is going to give you permission to do it. And so I think I think it's really important that you take action as early as you possibly can. It's like anything in medicine, you know, if you've got someone who has 
a very high blood pressure as a GP I don't sit there and go well I'll just wait for you to have a stroke and then I might do something about it you know because it'll be that much harder to recover from a big stroke but treating someone's high blood pressure is so much easier you know we know as medics that prevention is better than cure early intervention is better than late intervention and the same is true of burnout as well it's just about giving yourself permission to be able to make the decisions that you need to to get better and it's really hard it's really hard and I know because I've been there and I think everything you say you know it will be better for your colleagues but actually staying at work you're going to be making more mistakes yeah we know that doctors who have higher levels of burnout have a I think something like a 63% higher chance of medical error you get presenteeism so you're not doing a great job anyway when you're working in a state of burnout are you yeah that's one of the features of burnout actually one of the the three components of it is reduced professional efficacy, which might mean making more mistakes. Um, quite often your cognition is affected with burnout. So you might get reduced attention and focus, decision fatigue, memory problems. These are all features of burnout. And at work, certainly how it manifested in myself was slower decision making and having to spend longer with patients, struggling to make decisions that prior to the burnout I would have made in an instant. I was very, very efficient at making decisions. I was a very functional trainee, actually. But I really struggled during the burnout to make those decisions. And as a result, I'd kind of ruminate, mull over the decisions and just spend so much more time and energy making those decisions. And without a shadow of a doubt, you know, at the end of a day of work, I was not the same doctor as I was starting the day, feeling a little bit more refreshed. But actually, one of the other things I want to add to that is that burnt out doctors continue to work. And just because someone is turning up to work and seemingly functioning doesn't mean that they're not in a state of crisis. It doesn't rule it out because I was still going to work, even though I was very severely depressed and I was having panic attacks and I shouldn't have been at work. If you're trying to you know, work out whether or not your colleagues might be going through it just because they're there doesn't mean that they're not struggling. And um, just to add to that as well, there, there was very recently a study that was in the BMJ that talked about medical errors in burnout is a huge meta-analysis and whilst the figures made for quite sobering reading in a way so burnt out doctors are more likely to make mistakes and they're also more likely to have complaints made against them I think I think what we should do is, is see that as something for leverage for change because I think if burnt out doctors are turning up to work and still doing their job even albeit perhaps at their own um, at their own individual cost to their mental health in terms of service provision you're still turning up and doing the work but if it becomes a patient safety issue this is the leverage that we have to push for change because if you're still providing a service then the, the powers that be don't really care that you're really struggling but if it's affecting patient care then this is this is the leverage we have for change yeah it, it's all really hard isn't it I, I think what you said about believing our feelings and feeling bad and then thinking, well, I'm feeling bad, therefore I must have done something wrong. And that, that's what guilt does. Is it, it, like you said, it alerts us to, I might have done something wrong. I might need to change my reaction. And I, I always been saying for the last few years, oh, we just need to ditch the guilt. And then my colleague, Caroline Walker, the joyful doctor says, no, it's not about ditching the guilt. It's about embracing the guilt because mm. it just means that you're a good person. It just means that you're not a psychopath. You actually yeah. do care about your <laughs> colleagues. Yeah. Where I think it gets really toxic is, 
when you sort of bring the amygdala into it and our amygdala is always searching to belong to a group and it and it raises a threat if it thinks that you're going to be physically attacked or you think the group is going to going to throw you out so so people pleasing is a massive thing if we think we're going to upset somebody our amygdala flares up it puts us into our threat flight fight or freeze zone lots and lots of adrenaline going around and we we absolutely do not think straight anyway and so this guilt feeling that we've got, it, it gets amplified. We always go to the worst thing because the amygdala is meant to keep us safe. The, the reason why we're so sensitive to upsetting people is when we lived in caves, if we upset the group, we'd be chucked out of the cave and then we'd die of exposure or beaten by a lion or something like that. So we are overdeveloped to worry about upsetting people. And then we feel these feelings, we feel really awful. But I was watching a, an amazing YouTube video by Tara Brack the other night where she just kept talking about these feelings which were real but not true. Real but not true. These thoughts being real but not true. I get it. You're pushed for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Um, but sometimes it's really hard to get to the truth of the matter when the system's saying, well, you've got to carry on working. Your colleagues are saying, well, we really do need you to keep working. And you're saying, well, I really should keep working. So what advice would you have to someone in, in that situation to, to break through all those different voices that are putting the pressure on? That's a very, very difficult question to answer, because I think quite often when you're in that position, your thinking is very, very disordered. And it's really, really hard to break out of that cycle. Part of that is because burnout changes your brain. So you mentioned the amygdala there. In burnout, the amygdala gets bigger and the amygdala forms part of your emotional regulation um, and it forms connections with your prefrontal cortex. And those connections get changed in burnout as well. So what you see is the amygdala getting bigger, those connections getting weaker, and you cannot control your emotional responses to stress, be it physical or perceived stress, at work, for instance, you can't control it in the same way compared to people who don't have burnout. And the worse your burnout, the bigger the changes on functional MRI scans as well. So I think, you know, your brain changes with burnout. And so it's really, really hard when you have those changes to be able to accept that and to break that cycle. A lot of my work now is about sharing the spiral into burnout and the stages of burnout, there are 12 theoretical stages of burnout in order for people to recognize where they might be on that cycle and to be able to take early intervention. Because I think if you get it sooner rather than later, you know, we're not given the skills or the knowledge to be able to recognize burnout. If you don't have that, those skills or that knowledge, you don't know that you need help. You don't know what you don't know, do you? So it's, it's important that people know that burnout is a thing and, and what the stages are so that they can recognise it and get help sooner rather than later. And then in terms of recovery, I think it's about if you're in a crisis point, recognising that you're there. And that is actually really, really hard to do. And I think 
in terms of advising other people, I think it's probably about a combination of doing some reflective work on how you're feeling and asking your loved ones if they've recognised any changes in your behaviour. Now, this is actually really difficult to do. But in the 12 stages of burnout, which is a theoretical model of, of the stages that people go into before they hit a crisis, behavioural changes that your loved ones might recognise is one of those stages. So listen to what your friends and your family are telling you. If they're telling you, we're a bit worried about you, or if they're saying, why are you being so grumpy? Why are you being so irritable? Instead of feeling threatened or defensive, it's about using that as a prompt to think, well, what's really going on here? And in order to work out what's really going on, I think having some sort of reflective practice, so a journaling practice is really helpful um, to be able to recognise that. And that's something that has become a regular practice of my own in order to recognise how stressed I am and whether or not my stress is getting worse, getting better, uh, where I am in terms of, of my mood. You know, it's it's really important to be able to check in on yourself regularly. And that's probably the easiest way of doing it, I think, and the most accessible way as well. Yeah, that's great advice. We we are quite unself-aware, a lot of us, and, and, until, it's, until it's too late. I'm interested, what are the first few stages right at the beginning? So this is a theoretical model of, of burnout. And I don't personally feel that you have to go through every stage in the sequential order in order to get to burnout. I also think that a lot of the stages are very similar to each other. But I think it's a really interesting way of getting to learn what burnout does to you and the, the, the extent to which it changes you quite often before we even realise it's a problem. So the first stage is excessive drive or ambition. So feeling an obsessive compulsion to prove yourself and demonstrate your worth. So I think quite often how that manifests is you feel like there's a bit of a problem and you do the classic thing that we've been taught since day one of medical school, which is you can solve all your problems by working harder. So that's what we do to start with. We start working harder. We work longer hours. We commit everything that we can to fixing our problems by working harder. And the second stage is pushing yourself to work harder and being unable to switch off. So not being able to switch off from your work, taking it home with you, not necessarily physically. Um, I never took my work physically home with me, but emotionally and mentally I couldn't switch off. And I worried all the time about the, the decisions I was making with my patients. The third stage is neglecting to care for yourself. So poor sleep fatigue is a huge component of burnout. Um, and something that I've suffered with, uh, quite uh, severely. In fact, eating badly. Yep. So some people eat more when they're burnt out. Some people eat less. You can go one of both ways. The fourth stage is displacing conflicts. That's not dealing with your problems in a healthy way, basically. Um, So sweeping them under the rug, feeling threatened, feeling panicky, starting to feel a bit jittery. The fifth stage is revision of values. And that's when your work becomes more important than your friends or family. So you might see some social withdrawal in this stage. The sixth stage is denial of emerging problems. So Uh, denial that there's anything wrong with your behavior, blaming things on your work, blaming things on your patients um, and being intolerant and grumpy with your colleagues. Then the seventh stage is withdrawing from social life, maintaining very little social contact. You might turn to alcohol or drugs to help you through this stage, uh, which obviously is a maladaptive coping strategy. The eighth stage is exhibiting behavioral changes that are obvious to both friends and family, which we just talked about. The ninth stage is depersonalizing. So this is where you start to feel like it's all worthless. It's all meaningless. You stop being able to recognize your own needs or to perceive them and feeling that you're that 
that, that your contribution is, is not valuable. Stage 10 is feeling empty inside. And again, you might look to alcohol or drugs to fill the gap. Again, that's very similar to stage seven. So you can see why I said some of the stages are very similar. 11 is feeling depressed and exhausted. And then 12 is a burnout crisis, basically. So you can see with that theoretical model, there are lots and lots of stages that you go through in theory before you end up in a burnout crisis. It took me about six months from being completely functional, feeling absolutely fine, never had a mental health problem to being in a crisis. So six months to go through that. And at no point did I recognise that I was entering any of that. I knew something was wrong and I was working really hard and I was exhausted, but I had no recognition about anything to do with what was happening to me and what burnout was. I didn't recognise it. But then I wasn't taught about it in medical school or in my postgraduate training. So why would I have recognised it? I think that's really helpful. And and even if you don't go through those in different sequential steps, I'm sure that there'll be people listening to this podcast going, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me. I recognise me in that. And I think that's really, really helpful. So Claire, I'd like to ask you a couple of things. Firstly, if you recognise that's happening to you, what are the the first steps that you can do to prevent it? And then what should you do if you feel that you are in burnout? So if you can spot it early and take some steps to treat it, much, much better, I'm presuming, much, much more efficient than than going to full-blown burnout. I think in terms of prevention, the good news is that if you don't end up in a burnout crisis, you're not likely to need an extensive period of time off work. You might not necessarily need to have medical support um, from your GP. You might not necessarily have to go have have some psychological support I think if you get it early enough what you really need to do is to address how you can perhaps gain some control or autonomy over your work and also to engage in some evidence-based techniques to manage your stress and your overwhelm so the thing about burnout is when you hit a burnout crisis no amount of self-care or yoga, or mindfulness is going to help you, unfortunately. What you need is a multifaceted recovery plan, and it's hard, it takes time. Whereas if you get before that point, you won't have to go through that process and do that really deep work. One of the biggest things that makes a difference to burnout prevention is working within functional teams. And so I think creating an environment at work where you feel psychologically safe. So by that, I mean, you feel safe to be able to raise concerns without judgment. You feel safe to be able to share your feelings with your work colleagues. That's really important. So having peer support and working within functional teams is really protective against burnout. If you have Uh, for instance, imposter syndrome or perfectionism in particular, these are risk factors for burnout. So if you can do some work around that and reduce the impact of those things on the way that you think, then that can also reduce your risk of, of burning out if you're worried that you're at risk of it happening to you. In terms of what you can do to manage your stress levels, so you know, as medics, we, we all know what, what is evidence-based, you know, getting some sunshine, doing some physical activity, eating nutritious food, making sure you're getting adequate sleep. Social connections as well is really important. Um, and so it's about prioritizing those things in so far as much as you can. Interestingly, in terms of building resilient teams as well, it's socializing with your peers that makes a big difference to how you perceive your work and your risk of burnout as well. So if you can spend time with your teams, 
and build those relationships outside of work that will help you um, from burning out. I think there is probably some benefit to having therapy potentially if you recognize that you have a lot of negative thoughts or if you have any unhelpful thinking styles like catastrophizing black and white thinking you might think actually I probably could do with a bit of psychological help I would agree with that comment about therapy or therapy or or, or even coaching because I think we've already talked about those those internal scripts that you've got around the guilt and I should be able to do this why is it me I'm dreadful I'm acopic I'm not any good so if you can actually catch those stories and get some help in how to change those stories. When I've having a bit of therapy recently, and it's so funny, so I'll say something to the therapist and she'll go, what did you just say? Is that (laughs) what you're telling yourself? And she'll go, ooh. (laughs) And I'll go, oh, is that not normal? (laughs) You know, I must always be perfect, for example, you know. Uh, And she'll go, no, that's not right, you know. And, And just to have someone reflect that back to you it's a bit like journaling isn't it because once you write yeah. down what's your internal thought processes are someone reflects that back you go oh my word I am thinking ridiculous things and I guess that in in a way being with a peer group that can help or, or just with people that really know you, you go can I run something yeah. by you I'm thinking this and they can go oh no oh is that what you're thinking oh my word we don't think that about you and you yeah. certainly shouldn't be thinking that about yourself right oh I was just gonna say so Dr Sarah Goulding who I, I know that um I think she's been on the the podcast hasn't she <laughs> Yeah, she did one about imposter syndrome. She's done about yeah. stuff about careers on the podcast. Yes. Yeah. So she she says, what are the stories you're telling yourself? And and I love that question because it forces you to to recognize that what you're saying inside your head isn't necessarily true um, and that you form this narrative that you then feel that you know, your behaviours all come off of that narrative, don't they? And your decisions, and they're, they're not necessarily the most helpful things that you're telling yourself, isn't it? I mean, I think I think stories in your head are really, really powerful. And we, we ask people that all the time on the training course, it's like, you know, what is the story in your head here? And what is actually true? And I guess that brings us back to the whole, how do you get out of that guilt of dumping on your colleagues when your brain has changed, when you're in your amygdala zone? And I guess one way to do it is just to ask for help quite soon because if you're asking for help you're not saying I need to go off sick or that you're just asking for help to me is just sense checking stuff I need some help here I think I might be can I sense check some stuff that I'm feeling or thinking and get a neutral person who doesn't have any vested interest in you carrying on with your work to actually just assess that I think that'd be really really helpful so I am evangelical about therapy I had a very intensive course of therapy through practitioner health to help me with my burnout and specifically to help me with the anxiety component of my burnout, because that was the thing that was really affecting me last year. And I, I threw myself into it because I felt so awful. I was like, I'll just, I'll just do anything to feel better. And, but I I didn't actually think it was going to help. Right. (laughs) I was like, I'll go through the process. I'll do it and I'll engage with it, but I don't think it's actually going to do anything. But let me tell you, I was blown away by how much it transformed how I how I think and how I behave and the effects have lasted as well. That therapy that I had and I had a combination of CBT and ACT therapy was incredible. It was very draining and I didn't enjoy the sessions at all because they were so intense but I did it and I still use the techniques to this day. You know if I'm feeling overwhelmed in the moment I'll go through some of my ACT techniques like diffusion if I notice that I'm getting into negative thinking habits again I stop and I'm like what is this thought 
can I form an alternative thought? What's really true in this situation? And it has completely transformed how I feel about myself. It's amazing. So everyone should have therapy, basically. Um, accessing <laughs> it, on the other hand, is is the is a tricky part, but I do recommend it. And there are ways that you can access it as a healthcare professional. So through Practitioner Health, for instance, and there are various charities and organisations that also provide support. I think the Laura Hyde Foundation is one such charity. So Claire, we're nearly out of time, but I just wanted to ask you about a couple more things because we've talked about how to prevent it. We've talked about things that are really protective for it. We've talked about what you can do when you spot it. Some of the things we talked about struck me that that maybe not so much in your own control. So the sort of team you work in, whether it's a really well-functioning team, well, there is things that you can do, but quite a lot of the time that's that's not in your control. The workplace environment that you're going back into, that's not often under your control and we know that patient demand covid nhs and that sort of stuff really isn't under under your control so if we go back to the initial premise that if you go back into exactly the same situation and nothing changes you are just going to burn out okay mm. it does seem to me it, it is about things that you can do and you can put into place that's going to stop that in the future so what what do you wish you'd done differently when you went back the first time that would have helped a lot when I hit crisis point what I really needed was first of all time off which I didn't do I probably needed some intense therapy at that particular point my therapy came later on in my journey but I think it would have been really helpful at that particular point in time but then once you've kind of got through that initial stage you then have to start thinking about your work and as we discussed you can't go back into the fire and not get burnt again either what you have to do is to make some changes within your current role or think about changing your role and for a lot of us in the NHS at the moment leaving your job might not be the right thing to do you might have a training contract for instance and be tied into that post for a certain number of months or years you might not financially be able to leave your job this is this is real life unfortunately and the thing that really matters is having some sort of control and autonomy. There was a study that was done in non-medics, group of burnt out professionals who all went off sick with burnout. And the only thing that made a difference at two years as to whether or not they were back at work was having that sense of control and autonomy. That's how important it is to your burnout recovery. But you're absolutely right. We cannot control the bigger things. We cannot control the the systemic pressures that we're under so where do you get that from and it's about working out where you can get that and go for low-hanging fruit I think essentially is my advice in this point so what can you realistically control where can you be boundaried mentioned boundaries earlier and how important that is what about the work that you're doing can you negotiate something with occupational health you know can you have amended duties shorter working days could you go part-time Those are all options available to you in terms of how you work. And then there's this concept of of this thing called job crafting. I don't know if you've heard of it, Rachel, but it's basically where you take the job that you currently have and you try to mould it and shape it into something that really works for you. Now, it's not about changing it beyond your job description. One of the problems, I think, with it is obviously that you have to make those changes. It's not something that your employer does. And I think for people who are burnt out, that can sometimes be a big ask particularly when you're in a vulnerable space and the danger is that you take on too much. But I'd I'd encourage people to think about what it is about their job that they really enjoy and what are your values? You know, what are the things that, that get you going? Why did you do the job in the first place? And when you think about what it is that you really enjoy, 
is there a way that you can incorporate doing more of that into your day-to-day work without changing your job beyond its description? And in doing that, you can gain a sense of control and autonomy because you're, you are the one making those changes. So for instance, if you really enjoy teaching, is there a way that you could factor a little bit more of that into your job plan? If it's forming relationships with your patients, is there a way that you can facilitate that in your day-to-day work and in your interactions? Obviously, a lot of these changes might be difficult and you might not be able to to fully do them in the way that you want to because of the pressure of the job. You still have to get the job done, unfortunately, regardless of where or how you work. But sometimes just some little tweaks some little changes is enough to keep you healthy when you go back. And I think the other thing just to add to that is that the burnout recovery does take a long time and not to get frustrated with the process. So some studies say you never recover some say 10 years the most commonly quoted figure is one to three years and that's that's generally what what I say as well so if you go back to work and you're you're still not quite right don't beat yourself up it takes a very long time to get over burnout and to start to feel to feel better as well even with those changes so you're normal if if you're in that position at the moment you it's entirely normal to be feeling like that You're absolutely right. And it's normal to, to struggle when you go back to work. And um, I was reflecting on what you said, you know, everybody that I know that has had burnout in the past that has recovered has completely changed the way that they do life completely. They become much more boundaried, both at home and at work. So you'll say, do you want to come out tonight? And they're like, actually, no, I can't because I've been out that night and I know that I can't cope. And I know that I really need to do this and that. And at work, they're like, no, this is what I will say yes to. This is what what I won't and and people really respect them for that I I must say they completely reset the way they do their their life and um it's interesting I was smiling when you mentioned job crafting I'm literally after this podcast about to go and host a panel discussion at the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management Conference about job crafting Ah. and there's lots of evidence yeah Yeah. in fact that will probably be out just before this one actually but and so (laughs) if you're listening and you want to listen to that go and listen to that but there's lots of evidence that job crafting actually helps increase engagement that's how how you feel about your job and then that in turn reduces levels of stress and burnout Mm. and I I coach lots of doctors for careers and things like that and I, I do remember one person one GP she was really really struggling and the only change that she made was that she realized she loved teaching, but she'd been put as clinical governance lead in the practice. Yeah. And when she changed her role, got a colleague who loved that sort of thing to do that, she did what she loved. Suddenly it all seemed a lot, lot easier and she was much, much happier. And mm-hmm. then she was able to craft out a role in medical education and then really push into that. So absolutely, mm-hmm. job crafting isn't just about completely changing your role. It can just be about, like you said, if you know that you really enjoy patient contact, then you maybe request to be part of the patient participation group. And then that means that you get a little bit more of the stuff that really gives you the, that purpose and maybe lose mm-hmm. some of the other stuff. So it's it's quite interesting. And I think control and autonomy is so, so important. One thing I notice amongst people that burn out is that they think they've got no choice. They feel that they've got no choice in life. They've got no choice in work. And you always have a choice. Even if the choice is to leave or to stay, that is still a choice. And we always encourage people to use the zone of power. The zone of power is very simple. It's a 
circle on a piece of paper. The zone of power shows you what you're in control of and what you're not in control of. And just write down everything in your life you're not in control of outside your circle. Write down everything that you are in control of inside the circle and then work out what is there inside the circle that you could do that you're not doing already to change stuff. And just another quick story. I was talking to another uh, person who was coaching GPs and she said she had this uh, coachee who was really nearing burnout and and they really wanted to to drop some sessions because they knew that was the only way they were going to be able to cope with they had small children as well and they said well have you asked if you can drop the sessions and the person said no they're just not going to let me I know I think I'm just going to have to leave and the coach was reflecting well would you not even ask (laughs) would you not even ask if the alternative is that you leave could you not ask ask for the outrageous and she saw this person a few months later and they said well, I, I just asked. I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I asked and they said yes. And, and quite often yeah. people will say yes. So I would say ask for the outrageous. What is the worst that someone can do? They can say no. Yeah. But then you know what your choices are. At least you know what your choices are. And I think so many times we just go with what other people want us to do rather than working out what we want to do. And again, I'll put the Thrive Week Planner tool in the show notes that you can download and and plan your ideal week and compare that to your current week and then work out actually what does need to change, what needs to shift. So I think there is quite a lot of autonomy that we could take hold of that we don't. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I really identified there with what you said, which is that quite often people with burnout feel like they don't have a choice or that your choices are very didactic and black and white It's one route or the other route. And actually, there's lots of options available to you. And you mentioned coaching. I think that's where coaching comes into its own because you can explore the options available to you with the guidance of someone who is removed from that situation. And so if you've got access to a coach, absolutely, I highly recommend that people do that as well at that particular point in their burnout recovery. Yeah, and I know that there are many, many places around the country that have coaching schemes for free either NHS Leadership Academy or training hubs, things like that. So just find out what you can get. Um, So Claire, in a minute, I'm going to ask you for your top three tips to prevent burning out again when you've already had a burnout. But in the meantime, if people wanted to get hold of you, how can they get hold of you or find out about what you do? So I'm most active over on Instagram where I'm at Dr. Claire Ashley. I also have a Facebook group called The Burnout Doctor. Anyone is welcome to come and join that. I also have a website, drclairashley.com, and my subscription box website. I run a subscription box for knackered medics. It's called uh, Do Yourself No Harm, and that's www.doyourselfnoharm.com. Great. Thank you. So if anyone wants to contact Claire, then then do contact her via those links in the show notes. So Claire, what would be your, your top three tips? Yeah. So these are my top three tips to prevent burnout from happening to you again. The first one is you must develop some sort of reflective practice. Ideally, journaling is probably the best way to do this, whereby you monitor your stress levels and your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviours, your emotions, so that you can recognise if you're starting to slide again. Because I did this myself, I recognised that I was sliding back into burnout last year and I could get help sooner rather than later. If I hadn't had that practice, I wouldn't have known. The next thing is you have to go and do some work on your values and engage in values-based decision-making to prevent yourself from burning out again. And by that, I mean your values are kind of your guiding principles and the things that are important to you, the things that give you fire in your belly. And burnout changes your values. Typically, after burnout, people tend to value their health more. But it's like any cataclysmic life event, like 
uh, a bereavement or starting a family, your priorities will change, your values will change after those those things happen. And it's really important you know what your post-burnout values are so that you can then use that to guide every decision you make about your future career and the way you want to live your life. And if you don't do that work, then you don't have those guiding principles and you're likely to make mistakes, unfortunately. Then the third thing is you have to put yourself first. You have to let go of that guilt and that shame. You can't pour from an empty cup. And as healthcare professionals, we tend to put other people's needs first. But the truth is you can't look after other people if you don't look after yourself first. Start looking after yourself. That means being boundaried at work. That means taking time to engage in evidence-based practices that will allow you to manage your stress. Like, for instance, doing regular physical activity, making sure that you're prioritizing your sleep, doing all the stuff that we know as medics to stay well start doing that now. Put yourself as number one. Life is short. No one on their deathbed ever says, really wish I'd worked harder. Oh, I wish I'd let the NHS flog me more. What are you going to regret more at the end of your life? Making a change or allowing yourself to stay burnt out and stay miserable? Put yourself first. And I know that's really hard for people that put the other people first continually. But if you want to serve other people, you have to be in the right place to do that. Thank you, Claire. I think that's so important. If you do struggle to put yourself first, yeah, by not putting yourself first, you are not serving other people you, because you will not be around for them, not be available. And my my three tips would be, number one, ask for the outrageous and craft your job Love however that. you can. Yeah. Catch the story in your head. Like, What are you telling yourself? And then number three, get help get help as soon as you can even if it's just a sense check that story in your head you know I'm feeling like this what do you think have you noticed anything is this normal um from a neutral party maybe not from your direct colleagues because they are maybe likely to be as burnt out as you are so yeah well Claire thank you so much for being here that's been such an interesting chat and I think there's probably some really useful stuff there for people so I have to get you back another time to to talk further about this and 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 good luck sounds like you're sort of really on a keel now which means that you will just notice those changes earlier so you hopefully won't go back into burnout fingers crossed fingers crossed I feel like I've I've been very well supported luckily I've made a lot of changes I have a lot more awareness now about my stress levels Mm. so hopefully I'll be able to sustain things going forward and Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Speak again soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.